Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1 with It's For Women, the car insurance with extra benefits like personal accident cover. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1 with It's For Women, the car insurance with extra benefits like personal accident cover. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1. Hello there and you're very welcome to the programme. Well, coming up in the next hour, as he celebrates his 80th birthday, I'm joined this morning for a special tribute to one of Ireland's greatest composers and songwriters, Phil Coulter. He's a man who can boast of chart entries in every single decade since the 1960s. He's collaborated with some of the biggest names in the industry, from Elvis Presley to the Bay City Rollers. And his catalogue ranges from A Town I Love So Well to Puppet on a String to Score Not His Simplicity. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can text us to 51551. You can email Miriam at rt.ie or you can tweet at Miriam O'Cal. Well, as I said, this morning we're paying special tribute to a man who's been a towering presence on the music scene in this country for the past 55 years. His remarkable rise saw him go from fairly modest beginnings on the streets of post-war Derry to the top of the global charts as a composer to a host of the biggest stars, such as Cliff Richard, Luke Kelly and Van Morrison. Just last month, he celebrated his 80th birthday. Musician, songwriter, composer, conductor, producer and very proud dairyman, Phil Coulter. Good morning and welcome. Thank you, Miriam. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I'm very flattered, in fact, to be, uh, to be a subject of, uh, of this tribute. Really very flattered. Thank but you. actually, as all the crew up there were saying, you look about 65. So what, before we get going, <laughs> what is the secret to not looking? And you don't sound 80 either when you're singing. The secret is having a lot of mouths to feed, Miriam. You know that. <laughs> Um, that keeps you going, you know. The, the reality is, last time I was in the States, a few years back, and the interviewer, it was a, a radio thing, and quoted that fact that I'd had, every, uh, had hits in every decade since the 60s, and he asked the question, to what do you attribute your longevity? And I said, that's an easy one to answer. I turn up for work on Monday morning. Mm. And I, you know, that's glib. Of course it's glib, but it, it, is, it is the fact. I mean, I consider what I do for a living is my job. You know, and because I've sold some records and, and uh, written some some songs that have stuck around for a while, doesn't mean that I can walk on water. You know, I get very very irritated by the kind of aspiring or, or novice kind of uh, performers who get like a couple of hit records and then think that they've discovered a cure for cancer and think that they can live their life by a rule book that doesn't apply. But that the, the rules that are for other people, that the, the rule book that ordinary people live by doesn't apply to them. I get very irritated about that, I really do. You celebrated your birthday just over a week ago mm. in your beautiful hometown mm. of Derry. How did you mark that occasion? Oh, wow. It, it wasn't actually planned. It's the way, just the, the, way the, 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 the layout of the tour happened, that on the 18th of February, which was the, the day before my birthday, we were in the Millennium Forum in Derry. And towards the end of the show, something wonderful happened. I, I, I played the town I love so well. And they knew that, you know, things were coming to the end. The proceedings were coming to a close. And in amongst the, the applause and the ovation, suddenly there was a spontaneous chorus of happy birthday to you. And it just took my breath away, you know. Even talking about it now gives me kind of lump in my throat. Because I'd never had more than a thousand people singing happy birthday to me ever before. <laughs> and, you know, when you get a reaction from an audience that, that transcends just a respect for your, for your musicianship or, or, or for an enjoyment of your, of your songs or whatever. But there's a kind of, well, kind of affection, you know. 
Um, Great that, affection. Yeah, mm. that's the thing. The Buddhists have a concept of, of, you know, the power of a lot of kind of good thoughts being, being, being directed towards like one individual or, or one, uh, one idea. And for me, that's very important. Uh, on stage and I think that kind of that's a great that's a great source of energy and that's one of the things that keeps me going Go right back Phil if you will tell me where you grew up about your parents about your family about your time in Derry as a young boy I grew up in, in the post-war I was born in 1942 and the war was still raging and I grew up in, a, in an era of uh, air raid shelters and ration books um, when I look back on those early days of as a kid playing on the streets, Abercorn Terrace, a little terrace house. My memories are all in black and white because, you know, it was a pretty depressed time. There wasn't a lot to get, to get excited about or joyous about. And in fact, the highlight of our year was two weeks that we spent on a little uh, rented cottage down on the shores of the Swilly. You, you lived the other 52 weeks <laughs> for that. And that trip was, you know, it was so exotic. I mean, even now, for me to try and recapture that sense of excitement, the build-up for weeks and months beforehand... I, I can't think of any other journey other than maybe, uh, you know, kayaking single-handedly up the Amazon or something <laughs> would be would have that same sense of adventure. So, yeah, things were tight, things were tough. My dad was, was, uh, was a cop, one of the few Catholics in the RUC, and people have asked me, was that awkward? Was that a sense of embarrassment or whatever? But it wasn't back then because we're now talking about, like, the 40s and coming into the 50s. And... He was the kind of go-to cop, you know. I mean, the Catholic community, if they needed any help through uh, paperwork, sending mm. out forms, claiming this, that and the other, the health service, whatever it might be, Sergeant Coulter was, was the man. So um, I had two brothers and two sisters. And music was very much part of the household. My father played the fiddle by ear. My mother vamped along on the piano, normally in a different key from when my father <laughs> was playing. But it didn't matter, you know, it didn't matter because wh what did I learn from that? I learned the importance of music as a living, breathing thing. If there was a big night in Derry, it would be in Coulter's house. And just that, that, that music being something that to be enjoyed, to be shared, that it wasn't just something you, you kept for study in college or, or for the annual music festival, that it was something to be enjoyed. Another thing that I learned growing up in Derry, and Derry, Derry looms very large in, in, in my whole development, was that in my teenage years, when unemployment was, was rife, you know, at one stage I think we had the honour of, of having the highest rate of unemployment in the British Isles. But one of the few ways that a Catholic could actually earn a few bob was to play in a band. And the shoe band era was just then exploding when I was in my kind of mid-teens. And so the penny dropped with me that these guys who otherwise would be on the dole are now joining show bands and they're, 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 they're making a living from this. So that was something that I probably <laughs> locked away at the back of my mind. Uh, so that when I went up to Queen's to study music, I thought this is hopefully maybe a means to a career. Which it was. But when you were a little boy, you didn't immediately take to the piano, did you? And I know your mom got you to play the piano, yeah. but... You didn't love it immediately. No. I would love to be able to tell you it was love at first sight, you know, <laughs> and that I was like instinctively drawn to the piano. And the, it wasn't that case at all. I hated the piano. I hated the five finger exercises. I hated scales. I hated arpeggios. But most of all, I hated my piano teacher. He was one of the old school who, who sat up you know, at the top end of the, of the keyboard. And if he played a wrong note, which kids are going to do as they're learning stuff, he was armed with a ruler. <sighs> Bang, and he would hit your knuckles. So I was making no headway. And my father had the good sense to see that he was kind of throwing good money after bad. So he took me away from piano lessons, which was the smartest thing he could have done. Had he stuck with it or made me stick with it, you know, I could have turned off music very, very readily because it, it, I had no affection for it at all. 
It was only when I was removed from the scales and arpeggios, etc. And then I began to try and pick up tunes that I'd hear on the radio, you know, little pop songs that I could pick up by ear. I could play the tune. I remember the first one was Buttons and Bows. It was all up the black notes. That's as far as it went, but at least I was playing a tune. So I, then I began to kind of get more and more fascinated by this and intrigued. So by the time I went up to St. Columns when I was, what, 11, Two years had passed since I was removed from the piano lessons. Now I was curious. Now I wanted to learn about the piano. And that, that was a great lesson too, Miriam, you know, at an early age, to learn that the best motivation of all is when you want to do something. And I wanted to learn. And that was, that was a turning point, you know. I was blessed in St. Columns. I had a couple of inspiring teachers, mm. you know, who uh, nurtured what they would, would, have, would have seen in me. And the strange thing is this, St. Columns, was very classically oriented, you know. The emphasis was on Latin and Greek and all that kind of thing because it was a minor seminary, you know. We are supposed to be turning out priests for the Dairy Diocese, which we did uh, with some success, including my elder brother. But anyway, music was not on the curriculum. So, so if you wanted to study music, you went up after hours. And then there was an outside teacher, Redmond Freel. Music was oozing out of his pores, you know. I mean, he was, the musicality was just, for me, very infectious. Interesting, I noticed as well, you mentioned, you know, the show bands and Jerry, but wasn't, I think it's true, Phil, that when you went, say, for a job in a band, no one ever asked you if you were a Catholic or a Protestant. It was like a non-sectarian area of entirely, society. Entirely. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's exactly the story. So the bulk of the, of the young guys um, on the dole would have been Catholic. Very little chance of a job. Certainly no chance of a job in anything like the civil service or anything, you know, formal. So uh, when you went for an audition for a band, as long as you could play the trumpet, and you'd probably learn to play the trumpet in one of two or three brass bands that existed in Derry. Um, and this was a smart move. This was now putting all of those hours of practice on your piano to good use. Now you could earn a few quid. You said earlier you went to Queen's. How did you find that, to study music? I found it, on, on, on one hand, I found it exciting. On the other hand, I found it intimidating because I was uh, 18 Belfast had been as far as I had been, and I hadn't been any further. So it was, it was a, a big, big step. And the whole um, structure of the university and the formality of it all, after St. Columns, which is, you know, pretty, mm, yeah. pretty small, that, that I found intimidating. But what I loved was the opportunities. It was like, for me, I felt like I was a kid who could let loose in the toy shop. Because before the end of my first time, I started my first band. With that kind of arrogance of youth and that kind of can-do attitude. I'd never even played in a band, but I knew this was the place to do it because the first uh, number of dances I went to in, uh, in around the university, the band that, would, that were playing would have been, yeah. they'd have been like seven or eight, as I would have thought, old guys, you know, maybe, maybe they were only in 40, <laughs> but they were old guys and they were wearing tuxedos with kind of, you know, Guinness stains down the front and they were sitting down and they were reading music and they were playing uh, orchestrations. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, do they not know what's going on in the real world? Do they not know about Fats Domino and, and Buddy Holly and rock and roll, which was then happening and exploding all over, over the world. And even in Ireland, the whole show band thing was exploding as Irish guys were trying to emanate Buddy Holly and, and Fats Domino, etc. So I thought, Phil... 21 think for it here, you're going to have to start a band, which I did. And, and had one through all of my years in Queens. And it was probably a saving grace. But it would have, again, it would have cemented that uh, fascination with popular music. But didn't you cut your first single as well? In my last year, some uh, bright spark in the Rag Week Committee. You know, every year 
and the students have this rag week thing to raise funds and dream up all kinds of mad stunts. Well, some bright spark on the rag week committee said, Phil, we come up with this idea of making a student record. And I would have been the kind of go-to guy because I had my band and this, that, and all. And I thought, yeah, we could do that. But I think about it, it was 1964. We formed our own label. I mean, it was quite visionary back then. You're only Again, 22. Well, it was, you know, but it was that kind of can-do. You think, yeah, we can do that. You, you, you didn't see the problem. You just said, yeah, because... As I say, that feeling of kids getting let loose in the yeah. toy shop. So anyway, I, I, I sign off this. Yeah, we can do that. So I wrote a song called Foolin' Time, one of my very first songs. And with my little band, the four of us, went into uh, one of the common rooms in the university with another pal of ours called Peter Lloyd, who was a bit of an electronics, was... His his greatest talent was he owned a tape recorder. That's, that's why he was on this. Why he was on the team. So we went into this common room and Peter had put tables up on their sides and put cushions on the window. And wow, this looks the dogs. This is this is the business. So we cut two tracks, one one of which was was fooling time, and released it as a fundraiser. Did a few radio things and that around around about the north and raised a few quid, I suppose, for the charities. And of course, we swanned about uh, the campus like rock stars, you know, for all of a bit of fortnight before the reality dawned. That's that's all over. <laughs> now, if you fast forward the tape to that summer, my summer gig is playing with my little band in the Great Southern Hotel in Bundoran, County Donegal. And we played for the dinner dances. In those days, it was all very elegant, you know. The, the, the residents would have their dinner, then we'll come in and do a little bit of foxtrot and slow foxtrot. That went quick step, there we were. So I got a call one night from one of the residents who was a bit of a music fan. He said, Phil, we're downtown in the Allingham Hotel, which was a famous late night uh, drinking spot. And he said, the Capital Show Band have just arrived. And they've finished their gig. And he said, they're bringing in their instruments. I think there might be a session. Whoosh! Before you could say Jack Robinson, I'm in the Alley Because they were massive not going to miss at the this. time, weren't they? They were no. huge. They were, there was the Royal Showman, there was the Capital Showman, there was Joe Dolan, they were the boys. So I met the Capital Showman that night, uh, arranged to see them for a coffee the following morning, having kind of ingratiated my way in to play the piano with them while they were having a bit of a session. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, tell you the truth. So the following morning I meet them for coffee and lost no time whatsoever in pressing a copy of my record into, into their, their hands, hands, whether they owned them or not. And I thought, job done. And I thought, well, at least I've been hanging out with a capital showman. I thought that was the end of it. Then I get the phone call, the phone call that changes your life. And that was from uh, a few months later. I was now back at Queen's. I happened to home in Derry for a weekend. And the phone goes in the hall. My mother goes out and answered the phone. And she comes back in and said, there's a phone call for you here from Dublin. In other words, what could be that important? Someone's actually calling from Dublin. And it was Des Kelly, the leader of the Capitol, who said, we love, your, we love your song. And would it be OK with you if we recorded it as our first single release? I said, could you say that again, Des? We'd like to record. I th- wow. That was, that was. From that moment on, Miriam O'Callaghan, I have to tell you, I was unemployable. That was it. I was now a songwriter. Uh, they, the, the Capital Showman recorded it, released it, and it was a top three record in Ireland. And that was it. I was hooked at this stage. Then, a few months later, Des called me again and said they were heading off to London to do some more recordings. Could I come along with some new songs? Blah, blah, blah. And it was during that visit that they hooked me up with the man who was their agent uh, in London, a man called Phil Solomon. And he saw me working with the Capital on the floor of the studio, heard the songs, etc., Asked me who I was and what I was doing and this, that and the other. Cut a long story short, that's where I started to work a few months later. Isn't that amazing how breaks happen? And, and is it while you were there that you wrote 
Puppet on a String, which was, of course, the UK's first Eurovision winner for Sandy Shaw. Once I got that entree, the hardest thing, you know, in the music business is to get in the door. And here was the thing. Solomon offered me this shot, but he said, like, I have, this, I have, an, I have an opening, but the opening is only, like, you know, so I'm going to hang around. So I had the choice of going back to Queen's and finishing my degree or jumping in with Phil Solomon. And to me, there was no contest. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents didn't see it that way, but I certainly did. And so I'm now in the door. I spent first uh, couple of years as an office boy for Phil Solomon doing, doing the kind of me. My fantasy was that, you know, within weeks I'd be arranging scores for recording orchestras. The actual fact was I was arranging sandwiches for the office girls <laughs> for the first number of months. But I, I, at least I was in the game, you know. I used to get the, the tube in from, from a little flat that I had in Cricklewood. And when I got out of the tube in Piccadilly Circus, every morning I did the same thing. I just stood there and looked at the neon signs and the big red buses and the London cabs and said, I'm in London and I'm in the music business. Even though I had a very menial job, but that was it. So anyway, by a bit of perseverance and luck, I suppose, I teamed up with Bill Martin and uh, we got the offer of, uh, of a contract with Keith Prowse Music in Denmark Street. Denmark Street, Tin Pan Alley, was then the centre of the music industry. And to all of my contemporaries then, all of the guys like myself, who'd come from, from Scotland, whatever it might be, they were just in the search of this holy grail of, of pop music. And funny, all of those contemporaries of mine, um, those were the guys who wrote the great British songbook. In the 60s and, and, and 70s, Delilah, The Last Waltz, uh, I, You've Got Your Troubles, uh, I Like to Teach the World to Sing. Oh, you know, just, I could go on wow. and on. These were the guys who were just turning out hits, and they were my contemporaries. The lovely thing about that era was that there was no jealousy, you know. It was like a rising tide floats all boats. If somebody got a hit, we thought, well, if he can get a hit, I can get a hit. There was a great brotherhood. And, you know, when I was doing the research for the, for the, uh, the memoir, looking back on the various chapters of my life, that's a chapter I figured, I think I have most affection for those days because we were all just, we were all rookies. We all had a dream, we all had a talent. We didn't have an arse in our trousers, but we had a belief that things were going to be good, you know. Um, and that brotherhood is something which, that kind of solidarity, something which I miss, you know. Did writing Puppet on a String, did that make a difference to your oh, career? totally. That opened the door. I mean, up until then, I'd been, I'd been getting the odd song recorded on an album track, hadn't had any big hits. And in fact, our publisher said, right, I'll extend this contract by another year if I see some kind of, you know, signs of activity. And it was about three or four weeks into the second year that we wrote Puppet on the String. That was the way to announce your arrival. The UK had never won the Eurovision Song Contest before. And now Puppet on a String romped home, then went on to sell like six, seven million records and with 120 different versions of the song. So all of a sudden, Bill Martin and Phil Coulter are songwriters and we have arrived in Denmark Street. So now we have, not only have we like a hit record, but we've got some respect, you know, and that was a big, big thing as well. But mind you, that didn't last for too long because we kind of lost the run of ourselves, to be honest. I mean, we went out and bought new suits and swanned around and and took our eye off the ball, you know. Our our publisher called us in. I remember this so well. About a couple of months after the success of Puppet, we were watching it going up the charts everywhere. I called and he said, boys, do you ever hear the expression that one swallow doesn't make a summer? (laughs) Yes, yes, Mr. Phillips. Well, let me tell you, one song doesn't make a songwriter. (laughs) You boys better get your finger out because, he said, the word on the street is that you guys are a flash in the pan. Wow. Oh, 
that hurt. That was a knife in my heart. And even, even now, I remember the feeling so well. What? Flashing the pan in my arse. So anyway, we, we adjourned to the local boozer, Bill Martin. I said, you know what? We're going to prove that we're not flashing the pan. I'll tell you how we're going to do it. We're going to win the Eurovision again. And you know, we came within one point of doing it with congratulations. Um, so I have a soft spot for your vision for, for two very good reasons. Pop it on a string and congratulations. And I want to talk more about congratulations, but we're going to take a break. So stay with us, Phil. Join us in a few moments. Tweet at Miriam O'Cal. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. I'm here this morning with Phil Coulter as he celebrates his 80th birthday. It's a special tribute programme to one of Ireland's greatest composers and songwriters. Phil, just before the break, you were mentioning Congratulations, which you wrote, obviously. Cliff Richard sang it. It didn't win and came second. And yet, it's one of the most remembered songs and everyone sings it at every birthday party. It's a song which I've said many times has fed, clothed and educated several of my children, that song. <laughs> they were the glory days of Eurovision where, you know, if you did win Eurovision, we came second, but you could still put the kettle on for six or seven million records. Again, a congratulations, you know, passed into the kind of public domain. It's, it's still as alive today as it was all those years. But that's 1968. But the Eurovision then had that connection to the to the public. It certainly lost its way. Now it's no. Those days, it did what it said on the tin. You know, it was a song contest. Now it's a TV extravaganza, and I, I get the distinct feeling that the the dress designer, the hairdresser, is nearly as important as the songwriter. Did your attitude, Phil, change to songwriting when you were brought in to produce the Dubliners? It was the same craft, but just a different a different idiom. By that stage, I'd, I'd, been, I'd learned the craft of, of, of pop songwriting and had a lot of hits. But you see, songwriting is a craft. You know, there's no such thing as a born songwriter. Not in my book. You're born with some of the tools. But if you're going to have a sustaining career, you need, you need to learn the craft. By that stage, I'd learned, well, I wouldn't say I was a master of it, but I'd certainly learned how to use the tools. So when, when I got the chance to produce the Dubliners, a chance at which I jumped. And of course, I'd known the Dubliners and Luke Kelly's voice, etc. So... To be dropped in the middle of all of that was, was certainly was a challenge. There's no doubt about that. And it was a bit of an education as well, especially trying to get the buggers into the studio at ten o'clock in the morning was 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 quite a, was quite a challenge. Especially when you had Ronnie Drew telling you that the morning pint of Guinness was the most important one of the day. And I'd say, "Is that right, Ronnie?" "That's right." Why would that be wrong? He'd say, because he gets a taste of the bleeding toothpaste out of your mouth. <laughs> so the first album with the Dublin was, was a bit of a kind of a dance, you know. They were getting, they were kind of sussing me out. I was sussing them out. I had to gain their respect. They, they didn't really give a monkeys that I had won the Eurovision or, you know, sold millions of records. What does he bring into this party? What's he like? Can he play? Is he any good? So the first album, I think I proved that I knew what I was talking about. Then the second album, I had the confidence to get more involved and start writing songs within that Dubliners context. And then that relationship with Luke Kelly began to mature. And I'd, I, looking back on, uh, on all of those years, and I've, I mean, I've been very fortunate that I've worked with, with some major talents and I've been mentored by some, by some uh, wonderful people. But I think that relationship I had with Luke Kelly was very, very special. Very, very special. For a number of reasons, not least of which, if you look at my catalogue, two of the songs that are most dear to my heart would be The Town I Love So Well and Scorn Not His Simplicity. And it's, there's no coincidence that, that it was Luke Kelly's version of those that, that, that would still be the definitive version. No coincidence that it was his voice that was in my head as I was writing those songs. 
And we're going to talk about scoring autism, but in a moment. But I need to talk about the town I love so well. I mean, I had you here a few weeks ago, mm. but not everyone will have heard that, Phil. It's such a beautiful song. Remind people, will you please, of when you played that song for Luke. The background to that of that would have been that Luke was continually badgering me to write songs that would go a little further than Pop It on a String or Congratulations. Uh, songs that, that have, you know, some substance. And... Well, I was in Derry on the weekend that internment was introduced. And like everyone else in Derry, we felt been, the city had been violated. So as a kind of knee-jerk reaction, I wrote an anti-internment song called Free the People. Kelly, I knew, I knew Luke would be all over it. I knew he would love it. And we recorded within a few weeks the Dublin's had a big hit with it. But I knew there's, there's another song of a bit more substance to be written about this whole situation. And that took two years. Just going backwards and forwards to Derry and just... Seeing the, the seeing the change in the landscape and that kind of pall of gloom that was descending on on what had been you know a very very musical and a very tuneful city now there's this kind of air of of, of gloom that that was almost palpable anyway I said about writing the song I thought well somebody's got to write a song about what's going on here because it's historic and if anybody's going to write a song about Derry you get your finger out you know so after a couple of years I, I, the melody I think came readily enough but then. Just working at the lyric, being so aware, Miriam, you know, that in a highly charged t- time like that, a few ill-chosen words, mm. it could have tilted it over to being another rebel song. Last thing we needed, especially back then. So I, I worked and worked at the lyric until I thought it was ready. And then I was rehearsing the Dubliners for uh, an album that was to be produced with them a week or so later in the most unlikely environment of two three-star hotel in Sheffield. On a weekday, the rain is battering down, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a railway station over there. Not the most glamorous, or most. So I had arranged with with, with I went up and say on a Monday night. I said, right, look, I have a song I want to hear, want to play just to you, not the band, just to, to Luke, yeah. to Luke. I said, so when you get up in the morning, come down and join me in, in the room, and I'll play to you rare and, and, and peace and quiet. So I kind of lunchtime the next day. By the time Kelly emerged, came down. I'm sitting on one twin bed. Luke isn't there. I've got my guitar. And I, I do the time and I say, well, if my eyes closed. Because I, I knew, I didn't want to see Luke's reaction. I'm, I'm still, this is like a new baby, you know. I'm, I'm still I'm still wary about, about uh, revealing it. And I knew that if Kelly thought that, that this song didn't cut it, he would, he would have stopped me and said, oh, for God's sake, stop that. You know, he, he, he would certainly have been able to tell me if he thought it was crap. So I didn't want to see, I didn't want to see him yawning or scratching himself. I just, no, I just kept my eyes closed and I delivered the song. Finished it with the, with the last... Uh, I can only pray for a bright brand new day in the town I love so well. Bloom. Played the last chord, opened my eyes and looked across at Kelly in the other bed. And there were tears in his eyes. That right there. In the there have been other moments when that song has meant a lot, you know. Whether it be, you know, Carnegie Hall, it be in the White House, or the Nobel Peace Award, whatever. That was the moment. That was the moment that I knew I've definitely hit the mark here. Score not a simplicity. Remind people, Phil, what that's about and then how Luke ended up singing that as well. So when my first son was born with Down syndrome, Paul, in the months that followed, I thought, as a songwriter, you know, you've got to be mature about this and you've got to address this in a song. Uh, to be honest, I suppose it was kind of therapy, to, you know, to get, get my head around that, that challenge. When, again, when, when I finished that song months later and I played it to Luke, the reaction from Kelly was that he, he realised that after all that badgering, I had made that step. The step from writing a song like Congratulations. And that's, that's the work of a kind of a craftsman pop songwriter. 
that's a different, that's a whole different exercise from writing a song about a mentally challenged child, you know, which is much more personal because what you're doing, you're kind of opening up your vulnerabilities, your innermost thoughts and, and, and feelings and whatever. And I was reluctant to do that and probably would never have done it had it not been for Kelly. So, but again, when I was writing that song, I knew the voice that I wanted to sing this was Kelly. And um, it's still, you know, the definitive version of the song. And people, I know, have received a lot of consolation from that. People still talk to you about that song, don't they, Phil? They do. I, it's, it hardly, it's, 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 of all the songs I've written, I think none has provoked that kind of reaction. Um, a steady reaction all over, a sustained reaction over all those years. I mean, these days, most people in Ireland have been aware of the song, but abroad, I mean, people in America or Australia, wherever it might be, further away, who haven't been aware of the song or haven't been subjected to the various recordings of it, there's hardly a week would go by that I don't get an email now to say from people who've had that experience of either a physically or a mentally challenged child and they become aware of the song and they can relate to, you know, the message, they relate to the to the lyric and they write just to tell me that not that it made, you know, not a, that it made the pain go away, but the fact that, you know, it happened to somebody else and that it's now expressed in a song. You're going to play that live for us now, Phil, this With morning pleasure. here in our Studio 8. Such a beautiful song, Phil. Thanks for playing that first live on our piano here in Studio 8. Tell me, if you don't mind, about the death of your brother Brian and of your precious sister Sid. What happened? Mm. Well, the curious thing is they both happened in Loch Swilly. When on two unrelated incidents about, about a year apart, first was my brother. He was windsurfing and he was very competent windsurfing. He windsurfed all around the world. But this was in the wintertime. And normally uh, they go out in pairs. But um, on this particular occasion, when, when, when Brian called for his partner uh, that he normally windsurfed with, he said, look, I've got a birthday party going here with one of my kids. Um, you go ahead, Brian, get, in, get on the board. I'll be down in an hour or so. So in that hour or so, uh, the wind had, had whipped up and got the gale force wind and, and Brian was in real trouble. Basically was, uh, was, was blown out to sea and drowned. The sad thing is that people, people on the shoreline could see this windsurfer being knocked off the board and someone even called the guards. But there was no lifeboat. There, there were no boats in the water. That was really... That started... Um, a campaign, some of my friends, some of my brother's friends, we started campaigning the RNLA to get a boat in place. I, I did some concerts to get have to get the start-up funds for the boathouse, etc. And a uh, very proud day when, when that boat went on station in, in uh, Swilly. That's 35 years ago. And the last last number I heard, it had saved 70 lives in that time. So, you know, that's, that's at least something positive. Yeah. So that was Brian. My sister said, well, not even a lifeboat could have saved her, I'm afraid. She was a wonderful girl. She was very spiritual, very kind. Never heard her say a bad word about anybody. She was just one of those caring, endlessly gracious kind of girls. And she was a counsellor for addicts with drug and, and uh, alcohol problems. Her 10-year-old son was his birthday, and they're all around the table. And she's got out the ice cream cake, and then she gets a phone call, say, an emergency, one of her cases, one of her clients, big emergency, whatever it is. So she said, put the ice cream cake back in the fridge. He said... I gotta go. Something urgent here, but I'll be back soon. Then I'll get the cake out. Then we'll eat the the, the the ice cream cake when I come home. Well, she never came home. Turned out that I discovered subsequently that it's it's not unusual for addicts to obsess about the counselor. So that's what happened. And the, her this particular client was on a suicide trip. He was particularly at a, at a past past the point of rescue, I suppose. But he determined to take her with him, and. Uh, 
So the car was driven off the edge of the pier in Bunkrana into Loxwilly. And that was, um, so she was missing for, for a couple of days and that was, that was probably the worst, that was the darkest hours of all, we just didn't know. And then finally, and we got a tip from, from, uh, some, from Bunkrana where, where a couple had said, we think we saw, they reported the guards, like, a, the, the, you know, the railway sleepers at the end of, of a pier, that there seemed to be two gouges, like as if they'd been cut out by, by a car. And so that was enough for the guards to send in the sub-aqua unit and they'd, they found the car uh, in the depths. And that was, well, I was obviously on hand with with my brother, Father Joe, and we stood there on the pier as the crane just lifted the car out of the water. And uh, just seeing my young sister in, in, the, in the car was like, that was really, really dark hour. It was like a, an out-of-body experience. I thought I was up there looking down on it, you know. It was just so surreal. Yeah, that's that's a picture that has stayed with me forever. So sorry, Phil. In the midst of all that, you lost your dad. I mean, yeah, how well, did you we, deal you know, with all of that? Well, I was kind of relieved that he, that he had passed away before my sister had gone missing. That that, that would have killed him, no doubt about that. So I was kind of relieved that, that he wasn't around to suffer through all of that. But yeah, within a little, I mean, just a year, a bit more, that was I was I was then at that stage pretty sick of funerals and funeral directors and all of that. You know, I just I'd had enough. Let's listen now. Your father's death, actually, and everything you've been through, prompts you to write a really beautiful song called "Old Man." You're going to play that live for us now as well, Phil. I'd love to. It was beautiful, Phil. Your song written about you, Dad, Old Man. We're going to take another break. Stay with us, Phil. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio One. In this weekend's Business Post, as Russia escalates its brutal invasion of Ukraine and the death toll mounts, our top writers speak to those on the front line, analyse the response from Ireland, the EU and the US and assess the implications for the corporate world. Plus, is it time to reconsider Ireland's policy of neutrality? The Business Post. Buy in-store or subscribe at businesspost.ie. Two letters. D-O. Just two letters. But when they come together, they make a powerful word. At BDO, we do. We challenge and advise our clients so their businesses can grow and prosper. And knowing that we help you to succeed, that's what drives us. It's in our name. It's what we do. To learn more about what we can do for you, visit bdo.ie. BDO. Smart Business Advisors. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1 with It's For Women, the black box car insurance that lets young drivers drive safe, go further and save more. Tweet at Miriam O'Cal. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1. I'm here this morning with Phil Coulter as he celebrates his 80th birthday. He looks about 60. Listen, you worked with the actor Richard Harris, didn't you? How did that come about? We used to drink in the same pub in London, Irish pub called uh, the Queen's Elm. And I had been, I'd been a major fan of MacArthur Park. That mm. was, to me, like an iconic record. Still is. It still would be in my top ten of favourite records of all time. It, was, it broke all the moulds. I mean, it was about eight minutes long. It was very rhapsodic and very complicated. But I loved it. And I thought Harris, with that ability of an actor... To, to, to bring the drama to a song, to breathe life into a song. I mean, he, technically he wasn't a great singer, but he had, by God, he could really, really bring a song to life. So then he, he did a couple of albums with Jimmy Webb, who wrote MacArthur Park. And then Harris Ben Harris just probably got bored and went back to making movies. 
and then I think he had a fight with Jimmy Webb as well. Um, Harris was not one to walk away from a fight, let me tell you. Anyway, so over over a lot of months and a fair bit of drink, it has to be, it has to be admitted, I persuaded Harris back into the studio. And we did an album called My Boy. Uh, and the title track, My Boy, was a song which I had written with uh, a French a friend of mine, a French collaborator that, I, that I'd worked with in France. At that, at that period... Um, my French was very fluent, and I was one of the few people in the in the industry in, in in the UK who had French, so I could go to France and work with some of the French artists like Mireille Mathieu, etc., and got friendly with a lot of the, the industry over there. So Claude Francois, who also was the man who wrote a song called uh, Comme d'habitude, which became My Way, when when the when wow. Paul Ranka Anka wrote the lyric. So Claude was was great songwriter. So there's a song called uh, Parce que je t'aime mon enfant because I love you my child. The English lyric which I did was was uh, my boy and Harris just knocked it out of the park. It's a story song about you know marriage. Well the whole album traced the story of you know the beginnings, the tentative beginnings of, of a relationship and then a, a love affair and a marriage and then things going a bit askew and falling apart but there's one kid, father saying things might be tough but I'm staying because because of you. That's That was the... Uh, that kind of payoff. So that became the Harris version of the album. The album was like top 20 in America. We even toured America. <laughs> we even toured America for like, I have to laugh because when I come back from that, <laughs> Harris was then in the whole of his health. You know, by that I mean he was some gore. Uh, he was then what he was in kind of mid 40. So he, uh, he was. An Olympic drinker at those days. He was beautiful uh, as well, though, wasn't oh, he? And brilliant, wow. yeah. He, the, the, he could light up a room. Right? Mm. I mean, he just—he was a larger-than-life character. And although we I mean we we had our we had our moments and we fought a bit about this, that, and the other, but he was a major, major character. So on that, we we toured we toured America for I think maybe four weeks with thirty-something piece orchestra. That was not for the faint-hearted. I came back from, from that tour, seriously thought about checking myself into St John of God's. That's how bad that was. So how did Elvis Presley, I think he does a beautifully, end up singing your song, My Boy? Well, this is a great story because he became aware of, of the Richard Harris version of it. And because he was going through a kind of tricky period in his marriage, he, he identified with the song. And this is important. He decided he wanted to do a version of that song. Now, the normal procedure to get a song recorded by Elvis Presley, music publisher, songwriter would have been bombarding uh, his management with songs. And there's not a songwriter that I know who wouldn't have sold his children into slavery to get Elvis Presley to sing his song. But because Presley wanted to do the song, we didn't have to go through any of that. We didn't have to give away a piece of the song. Presley wanted to do it. Again, that was just like good fortune. So... I discovered, this is like maybe 18 months after Harris had uh, added his hit, um, I got a call in the middle of the night from uh, Albert Hammond, the great songwriter, a great buddy of mine, and uh, Albert called me up and said, Phil, you bastard. What he <laughs> What's going on, Albert? He said, I've just been to see Presley in the Hilton in Las Vegas. He's singing your song. What? He's singing my boy. He said, I'm green with envy. And that's how I heard and it took maybe another six months before Presley actually recorded it, was released in an album, and then pulled off as a single. And it was Presley's biggest hit in the uh, five years before he passed away. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's a beautiful song. Well, it, I'm, I'm very, I'm, probably I'd be my, my, my biggest boast professionally, you know. I mean, mm. in fact, especially after a few glasses of wine, I'm, 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 I'm inclined to bore my friends with reminding them that I'm the only non-American songwriter I've written a top three record for Presley. You wrote Ireland's Call. How did that come about? And were you worried about writing the anthem? 
Well, it was a big ask, yeah. It came about because the IRFU finally got around to confront what had been a bit of an elephant in the drawing room for a long time. I mean, there had been an uncomfortable kind of situation when in the squad there would have been a lot of guys from the north. And when you get rugby players from the north, nine times out of ten, they're from the unionist persuasion. Mm. Catholic schools tend to, tend, tend to play GAA or soccer. Now, there are exceptions, but in the main. So rugby players of that kind of calibre who emerge from Ulster would tend to be from the unionist uh, uh, community. Therefore, for them, Iranavine is not their national anthem. You know, they perceive themselves to be British. God save the Queen's their anthem. You may not agree with that, but you have to respect it. So there would have been that uncomfortable thing where players from the North felt uncomfortable and wouldn't, a lot of them just wouldn't sing uh, the soldier song. And certainly the fans in the Aviva would have felt the same. And it hit, it hit an all-time low, the very first Rugby World Cup in Australia. Willie Anderson, who was in the squad at that time, told me the story that this was shortly after there'd been that, that car bomb that had uh, killed a, 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 a Chief Justice on his mm. way north and, and badly injured some of the rugby players, ended their careers. So that was very fresh in all of their minds. So they thought that the soldier song to play that might be just a bit insensitive, given that this, you know, this uh, atrocity had happened um, only weeks beforehand. So they scratch around and say, well, what are we going to play as an anthem? You're never going to believe this. Somebody uh, in his kit bag had got James Last playing the Rose of Tralee and over the tannoy for the Irish national anthem at the World Cup in Australia came the Rose of Tralee by James Last. Beautiful melody, but not a song you want to go to war with, you know what I mean? <laughs> so that, I think, was an all-time low. And eventually they are, if we go around to think, well, we've got to confront this. So they called me in, and that was the brief. We need a sporting anthem that will be all-inclusive, hands across the border and all of that, and that people and players, be they from the north or south, can sing comfortably. But of course, it was a great uh, honour to, to be put in that position. And when I came out of that meeting, I thought, well, this, this, is, this is about time, number one. I thought, number two, I think, although this is a kind of daunting commission, I think they're smart asking somebody from the north because I'd be aware of the sensibilities of the unionists. I, mean, I grew up, you know. Mm. So that meant when you're sitting down to write the lyric, there's certain words that you had to avoid, you know. It was the whole idea of the 32 counties. You couldn't, I just, if I say the 32 counties, there are going to be some people who go, oh, it's a bit kind of, mm. you know, that's a bit insensitive. If I couldn't even say, and united we'll go forward, mm, but touch of that, when we wear the green. So that was, it was a big challenge to try and get that idea, lyrically, of, you know, the 32 counties or a united, you know, the united, the united uh, country. So it wasn't until I came up with the four proud provinces of Ireland, that was the key that unlocked it. After that, the song kind of wrote itself. Yeah. Does it feel great now when you hear everyone singing it? Well, I tell you what feels great, that the begrudgers have finally been silenced because <laughs> when, the, when, that, when that song came out first, there was this conspiracy theorists that th thought it was like some kind of pushy northern plot to, to, to kind of take over from, from Ireland's call or from, from Ireland of Ian. It was never meant to do that. So I think that it was at that historic uh, game when we played England in Croke Park. Mm. Uh, and when, you know, that was historic. And so when God Save the Queen was played, much to our uh, relief, there was absolute silence, absolute respect. Then Ireland of Ian, decibel level through the roof. But then Ireland's call really just took off. Mm. And I remember thinking, that's it. We've now finally arrived. It had taken a long time, but I thought, yeah, the begrudgers have finally been silenced until now. It's, it's kind of passed into the public domain now.
show Phil you've had such a spectacularly successful life if you look back on your life so far do you feel grateful for it or or how do you feel about life well it's not a day goes by that I don't thank God for the fact that I've made a living from my talent that's a rare gift but I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I was I was born with these tools you know but I was I was also given a work ethic in growing up in the north and in St Columns and it was ingrained in me that If you have a talent, you have a God-given responsibility to do something with that talent. And the talent per se entitles you to nothing. It's what you do with the talent and what you keep doing with the talent that keeps you in the game. Well, you've certainly held to that. Phil Coulter, it's been my pleasure to interview you this morning. Thanks so much for being my guest. It's been a pleasure. It's been all mine, Miriam. And we know, Phil, of course, you're back touring this month and next month. And all your tour dates, they can be found on your website, philcoulter.com. And that's it for today. Our programme was produced by our series producer, Cora Ennis. Pada Carney was in sound. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be here at the same time next Sunday. Stay listening for Brendan. Until then, slum. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1.